1: Welcome in. This is the Tuesday not-so-deep-dive episode on Chit Chat and Money. This is the show where we go over an individual stock, mainly for the first time. I want to be clear on that because we always get... Some people have expectations that are a little bit different going to these shows. This is our first look at a business. So, if you know this company that we're doing covering here already pretty well, it's not... Maybe, maybe, we're gonna cover maybe we should say we've
2: done some research. Oh, it's yeah, not, it's not research. like we're just like browsing through it. We've done some, uh, some research and so we're going to give sort of our first take.
1: Exactly. So if you know a company well, this time might be the episode for you. But if you don't know it at all, it's a perfect episode for you. Today, we're covering Portillo's. I think that's how we say it, right, Ian? You've been there, is that how you pronounce it?
0: Yep, that's how you pronounce it.
1: All right. They're not using the Spanish accent correctly, but that's okay. Okay. Um, I don't know whose choice is this ryan oh it's yours oh no it's mine wow i'm forgetting but ian you're the one that has been there uh ian's joining us today i don't know what uh give a little teaser of your anecdotal evidence what are your thoughts good or bad food
0: good food um, definitely heavy food you know it's got hot dogs and hamburgers and um, italian beef sandwiches and all sorts of you you leave there feeling pretty full i'll say that much Um, and it's a pretty like it's it's a little bit of a unique at least the ones that i've been to are a little bit of a unique restaurant too where it's uh they've got kind of old chicago decorations up around and um that it, it feels like you're walking into it's not just like a cookie cutter box it's they've spent some time and money to to make it a portillo's feel but,
1: um, yeah and we'll get into more of the details but first we have to talk about our sponsor today and that is potential multi-baggers the aim of the potential multi-baggers service is to find stocks they can go up 10x over the next 10 years or compound at 26% per year. Potential multibaggers is looking for high growth stocks to hold them for a long period of time. Now with the stocks that have been classified into the high growth category, they've had a tough time over the last few months. So potential multibaggers can be a great asset as you're trying to research and navigate you know what companies are doing well what companies are doing strongly Ryan is something that this too. is
2: the this is the environment where Chris quite literally really makes his money this is where you've got a lot of potential uh, companies that can compound at high rates which is kind of what he looks for that's his hunting ground and they're trading at i would say generally uh, of the stocks we've looked at lately they're trading at reasonable valuations.
1: Yep yeah, it's a it's a great hunt. it's a great time to be hunting for some of those high growth stocks. So if you want to become a multi and get some of those research reports every week, you can go to Seeking Alpha and look for from growth to value. Google it or go to at from value on Twitter. If you can't find it for whatever reason, DM us on Twitter or find our email in the show notes. All right, Ryan, introduce Portillo's for us.
2: Portillo's is the owner and operator, uh, keep in mind, I'm saying owner and operator there, that's not a franchisor, um, of a restaurant chain that serves iconic Chicago street food. So Ian kind of touched on it there. The menu items include things like Chicago-style hot dogs, uh, hot dogs and sausages, Italian beef sandwiches, chopped salads, burgers, fries, cake, and milkshakes. So similar to sweet green, which we discussed last week, very healthy This is leaning into the real. This is <laughs> it's not healthy, I guess I should say the, uh, which is probably bullish if anything. Honestly, that's probably looking a good at sign. the
1: stock prices of unhealthy restaurants. Yeah,
2: it yeah, and so uh, and and no one item accounts for more than a quarter of their sales. So it's a pretty diverse menu in terms of what consumers' habits are, and then they currently operate only sixty nine locations across the U S. So this is not a huge franchise, but uh, and most of those locations are. Uh, located in the Midwest, so Illinois, and Indiana, that's where they started the Chicago area, but they've also added some in Arizona and California lately. The thing that I think probably caught Brett's eye and and all of our eyes is that Portillo's generates the highest per store revenue of any fast casual restaurant concept in the United States. Second is Chick-fil-A. So from everything I can tell, Portillo's has a complete cult-like following. People love the food. They love the brand. Um, almost and to be clear. It's
1: only really in Chicago area right now as a dense dense locations.
2: Yeah, they're starting to expand, um, but yeah, as far as like actually concentrating any markets, it's pretty much Chicago. And so, um, other things to know: almost all their store layouts consist of two lane drive throughs. So there's uh, drive through lines on both sides. And then uh, they also accommodate for dine in, carry out, curbside, delivery, and catering. So, for reference, in 2019, about 41% of their sales came from the drive through, 53% were from dine in, and then 6% came from delivery. It's flipped a lot due to COVID. There was obviously a little more, uh, a little less dine in. And an interesting note here for more than 20 years, Portillo's has actually operated a direct shipping business to all 50 states. I had to read that twice, but you can literally if you're like a diehard Portillo's fan and you have to have their beef sandwiches, you can order 20 Italian beef sandwiches, have them have them delivered to you. Uh, so you can buy them online. That's how much some people love their food. And there's like basically an online site. You can also buy like Portillo's shirts. It, it's like
1: online beef sandwiches. It sounds, I compare
2: it to like the, yeah. <laughs> the fanaticism around in and out in California Yeah, it's probably maybe even a little further.
1: But the food's actually good
2: there. Uh, uh, you've never been to Portillo's.
1: No, or just are you... from the anecdotes, you know. Oh. in and out feels the from what I didn't said.
2: mind in and out. I think it's it's uh, it's subjective to everyone. But Portillo's, yeah, basically, very uh, very fanatic fan base, and then in as far as the history goes, it's actually a pretty cool story. So in 1963, Dick Portillo returned from serving in the Marines uh, and he used money from his savings, plus an investment from his brother to open a hot dog stand known as the Dog House. Uh, He invested $1,100 in total into this initially. And all it was was literally a six by 12 trailer with no running water. So he had like a 250 foot long hose to supply water. and they, they just sold hot dogs and it it ended up working out. And he, there's actually this cool anecdote where he was, it wasn't going so well. They were not very profitable, like the first year or two. And so he would like go and sneak into his competitors' kitchens to see where they like bought their uh, like supplies and inputs. Um, and they were, he was able to make it a more profitable business. And the. Uh, four years later there was after some more success portillo changed the look of the building and renamed the company portillo's and by 1970 Dick portillo he added a partner and the company he used that partner essentially to expand into a second location it wasn't until 1983 that they added their first drive-through and figured out how great of an addition that would be but here's kind of an interesting part portillo between 1972 and 1989 started opening up a new restaurant concept called barney's that specialized in more barbecue meals and like also pastas as well. And then in 1993, Portillo decided to uh, blend the two concepts and the this Barnelli's was introduced. And now the menu consists of, uh, even though it's really Portillo's now, It consists of all these items so like i said it now has things like pasta sandwiches salads and then the typical stuff you found at the original portillos Um, and the company continued to add locations throughout the country and after 50 years of success portillo sold the portillo's brand to a private equity firm called berkshire partners in 2014. my first thought was this is a perfect berkshire hathaway company it is not berkshire partners is not associated with berkshire hathaway at all
1: yeah similar to dairy queen i guess
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh, But about about six months ago, the company came public. So they were private under Berkshire Partners for uh, eight years. And now they're officially public uh, and they've had two quarters as a public company.
1: Yep. And now they're trying to really grow and become a national brand. All that industry competition, pretty easy. Again, looking at restaurants, it's not really difficult to see, but fast casual restaurant chains, uh, they hit $125 billion in sales in 2019 and then they're expected to grow at a 10% rate. So Chipotle's Panera, they're, uh, they're growing really, really quickly. And then if we look at competitors, it's really all restaurants. It's hard to pin it down, but I mean, you're, you're competing more with an in and out and your local burger or hot dog joint than someone like those healthy lunchtime items, maybe like a, a Panera, a sweet green, or Chipotle. It's not, I don't think it's the lunchtime run. <laughs> I think I would pass out if I had portillos in you know, in the afternoon, but, um, and like Ryan mentioned, only place of saturation is the Chicago area and they're expanding around the Midwest and then into Arizona, Florida, California, a bit, um, pretty simple industry. There's not much to talk about there. So Ian, do you want to hit management and ownership?
0: Yep. So this one has a little bit more of a complicated ownership structure as Ryan was talking about. It was bought by this private equity firm and, their funds, it's in a variety of funds, but they still own about 63.7% of the shares outstanding and have a lot of the seats on the board. So they, they're they in control of what what happens to this company, even post IPO. And so I would say that's something to pay attention to as you dig deeper into this company is try to figure out how you feel about that, what you how you feel about the private equity firm. I will say the CEO is this guy named uh, Michael Osanlu. Um, he's the former CEO of PF Chang's and worked at Kraft Heinz before that. Previously, he was a partner at Bain, um, consulting, and he's also on the board and I've watched a couple of little interviews with him. He seems, he seems to be competent. He's got a lot of experience in this area. Um, it feels like the type of thing that there's some fairly standard, um, strategies and things like the restaurant business isn't super complicated. There's some things that are outside of your control. I think with the restaurant business that make it um, difficult, but the actual nuts and bolts of it, there's, there's some tried and true strategies. And so having him in there, I think is probably a good thing to just have someone who's knows what he's doing relative to the restaurant business. Um, they're pretty much, that's, that's the big thing with management and ownership is just to know that the Berkshire funds still own about 60, almost 64% of the shares outstanding.
1: Yeah. And they might, it could be some selling pressure, if they, you know, their private equity firm is probably getting ready to return capital to shareholders or however that right. works, you, so you would think they could you, be selling down here recently. Or you soon.
0: would, you would think that there could be some sales, especially given how long they've been in the position. You know, I think the, the original transaction was in 2014 when they bought it. So to think about the original capital going in eight years ago, um, you would expect. You know, I'm sure they got some of that back in the IPO, but um, uh, you would expect that yeah, that there could be some selling pressure. So it's something, something to watch for sure.
1: Yeah. And I did see that the CFO worked at the Domino's Pizza Finance Department. I thought that was a pretty positive sign. What Because Domino's has been pretty good at that financial engineering stuff. What do you guys, any thoughts on that? Was that positive, negative? Yeah. Uh,
2: they also compare themselves in the delivery space to Domino's as well. I think it's...
1: It's tough That's for it's me. Tough I'm not like beef sandwiches to travel though.
2: Well, people buy them from 50 them states away.
1: I don't know, but or, it just seems like a hard, like you're dunking it into this, the whatever, that sauce and like like the, the juice. I don't know. It seems tough. <laughs> Hot dogs, though. I don't know. Good job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not as easy to deliver as a Domino's pizza, but. I don't know. I, I think they brought in good management. It seems like it seems like they have the experience that are, it's probably necessary. And I actually think it's a pretty good sign that they're still holding on to shares. Uh, the private equity firm. It seems like they're treating this. I mean, th- they didn't just like juice it for profits. They they also grew the business while they were owners. So it, it seems like they're kind of in it for the long haul.
1: Yeah. Who knows though? We don't. I guess there it's speculation, either, right? but yeah. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta
2: by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home, and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com.
1: All right. I'll hit valuation. Market cap, $732 million. Ticker is P-T-L-O. If you look at the aggregators, uh, they're going to have some of them wrong. I don't know why they're getting wrong data for their market cap. And apologies to the Motley Fool article I wrote, I gave the wrong market cap. Uh, So that's Coifin's fault. We'll blame them. But in all seriousness, that is a good point. Whenever you're actually researching a company, make sure to just go into the shares outstanding and multiply it by the share price. Because sometimes Yahoo Finance, Google Finance, Coifin, Bloomberg, whoever can be wrong. Um, and in this case, it's, it's way lower than, than, than they're stated. So market cap, like I said, $732 million. Enterprise value is closer to exactly $1 billion with quite a bit of debt on the balance sheet relative to their size. Ian, I'll get into that on the balance sheet. EV to sales, which is enterprise value divided by trailing 12 month sales is 1.9. EV to operating income, which is enterprise value divided by trailing 12 month operating income is 33.3. And I'll give another metric here that I think is kind of important to look at, and that is enterprise value to operating income. Assuming a reversion to the 2020 operating margin level of about 12.6 percent. In 2019, it was about 10 percent, but last year, due to uh, IPO stuff and inflation costs, um, their margins kind of went down, which is why their EV to operating income is so high. If you use that and assume they're going to revert back to that 10 to 15 percent range, their EV to operating income comes down closer to 15. And lastly, there's a lot of potential dilution incoming. Six million stock options outstanding, plus some other RSUs and stuff like that, versus 36 million share count. Granting pace isn't too bad, but just expect that dilution to come down the pipe. They've been pretty generous. They've given pretty generous grants to the CEO, some other executive teams. And to be honest, this will be my low lights, the board of directors, um, gets paid way, way, way too much for business of this size. All right. Earnings. Ryan, what do you got?
2: For the full year 2021, Portillo's had $535 million in revenue. Keep in mind, we, the last quarter was the fourth quarter. So this is the most recent information. So $535 million in revenue. That was up 17.5% versus 2020. And it was even up from 2019, even though they have not recouped their full uh, dine-in levels so uh, it's been kind of that was obviously a tough for them because they were such a big dine-in business and there's so much about eating at portillo's is the experience of being there and, and seeing the the, the themed stores and kind of getting that I, it really like you're getting the full sensory experience when you're there um and so that, that was a big drop off for them, but they've been able to recoup that and grow uh, compared to last year, their same restaurant sales increased 10 and percent year over year. They had an operating income. They had operating income of $30 million, but a lot of that was bogged down by uh, IPO related cost uh, inflation in some of their raw materials or commodities. And then uh, seven, they opened seven new locations during the year. And so. Well, that'd be CapEx. The Locations right that want to be included in their uh, in their expenses well, uh,
1: i mean i
2: guess in the income statement it would be
1: i mean the part capex is not there but i guess starting up a new store you, you extra won't have the payroll AUV. and salary yeah the, you, right? you won't have the AUV levels so i guess you know startup stores will probably have lower margins yeah
2: the restaurant level adjusted ebitda which i i typically don't use but i, I think it's indicative basically of what each store is making on their own was at 27% and that's pretty, really really high for uh, I think a fast casual restaurant. And it's one of the highest in the industry. Uh, they had 42 million dollars in operating cash flow, but they, like Brett said, paid a lot in stock-based comp related to the IPO, and then they had a lot of capex. So free cash flow looked pretty low. But generally, their operating cash flow margin, so the 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 amount of each dollar in revenue that goes to their operating cash flow is around high teens percentages to even, or sorry, not high teens, high single digit percentages to low teens. Um, And then they're targeting 10% unit growth long-term a year. Last year they had, they increased their store count by 8%. Um, So they're they're really trying to, they're not trying to grow super fast. They're trying to be steady with their growth. Um, Their stores are
1: expensive to build out relative to say like Starbucks. So it's not like, I don't know. And each it's one's more expensive.
2: It's not quite as replicable as some of the Starbucks, as like a Starbucks store, because each one's unique. They have different themes. And so you kind of, there's a, I think there's more of a thought process that goes into each new store.
1: Yep, And they're going for higher volume per store, right? Balance sheet liquidity Ian, I think this was a, I don't know, interesting balance sheet. It's a little, it's a little sticky.
0: Yeah. These, these ones that are private equity deals are always a little more interesting. So they've got $39 million in cash. That's just a little bit less than they had at the end of last year. It's about 3 million less. Um, they've got $394 million in goodwill, which is related to one of the, uh, it was a little opaque, but a little, one of the operating units, um, at some time or another, there's some transaction that results in this goodwill on the balance sheet. That's been stable for the, as far back as we can see. So, Um, not a huge concern there. And then they've also got about 260 million in trade names and other intangible assets, which get amortized down. And so that, um, is a, is a tax benefit because it's, it's an extra expense. That's not a cash expense that's hitting, um, every single year. And I assume was kind of useful in helping to raise some of the debt. Um, the, so I'll also say that the looking at EBITDA sometimes is probably a little bit better than looking at, um, EBIT in this case, just because of some of the amortization that's going on. Um, they've also got $326 million in debt. And so that's 326 million in debt versus 39 million in cash. Most of the principal on that is due in 2024. And so ideally the company's in a strong position at that point, or, you know, in the year leading up to it, so that it's easy to refinance the debt at a, uh, at a good interest rate, and that's also going to depend on the interest rate environment. The current uh, the current interest rate on the debt is about six and a half percent. I think it was five and a half percent plus uh, LIBOR, basically, or whatever the euro currency rate right now, or euro interest rate. Um, and then they have a, uh, or they noted in their ten K that they're a one percent a one percentage point increase in interest rates correlates to about three point three million of additional interest expense on an annual basis and so and in rising interest rate environment your every percentage point is about three point three million and so um if we got two or three percent over the next couple of years that's a six to nine million dollar hit to um cash flow every year basically because they're gonna have to be paying extra interest so that's something to know I don't think that like destroys the business case or anything like that but it it will be a little bit of
1: a drag on cash flow yeah that's definitely. It's definitely a low-add, but we'll talk about it later in the show.
2: This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities.
1: All right, let's move to anecdotal evidence. First up, Ian, you've been there. Thoughts? I know that it's it's an important part. Like people might laugh like, oh, what what, had you had you? How was the food? But it's it's a very important part of, I don't know, a restaurant stock because the food's got to be good for people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I really liked the food. Um, I always thought it was filling. I'm a sucker for chili dogs. And so I've had uh, (laughs) the chili dog a couple of times. I think I had an Italian beef sandwich the last time I was there. And I've only been two or three times because there's not any that are really in the central Valley in Phoenix. There's like two way out West and two way out East. And so, um, it's about a 30 minute drive to get out there if I'm just going from my house. And so, unless I'm in the area over there, I don't really go. Um, and part of that I think is because they're looking for bigger footprint stores. And so they're not getting them in the middle, more kind of in the middle of the city, but, um, prices are totally reasonable. The food's good. And, uh, it's pretty fast too. Like, I think you get, you get your food, you eat it and <laughs> get out and go to spring training game or something like that.
1: Yeah. I'm, cons- I see their prices on their app. I download the app to check the prices out eight bucks or six bucks for it. I see those and I'm like, how is sweet green? <laughs> I don't know. I look at that and I think sweet green selling at $14 and they're still in profitable. It, it, it going back to that show, it, I don't know. It's still, Seems crazy to me. All right, Ryan, any, anything? I guess you've never been.
2: Never but. been, but I'm going to pull up some, uh, some tweets that they had on their S1 that I thought were interesting. So, like I said, it seems like it has a cult-like following. So, one person said, I'm going to baptize my firstborn child in Portillo's melted cheese. Another person said, my healthiest and most stable relationship is with an Italian beef sandwich from Portillo's. So, that is your anecdotal evidence, uh, it seems.
1: Yeah. Good social strategy. They're yeah, good. it seems They're like yeah.
2: people definitely love it. And I. they also said that they get much better engagement on their social media. I don't know how relevant that can be because I think some restaurants probably just have horrendous social medias. But um, that I, I do think that's fairly fairly important in kind of building a bigger fan base. And it's that also helps when you're expanding to new locations.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, the only thing I'll hit is I downloaded the app. It was okay. Uh, I felt... I don't know, like it's important for a restaurant app to be very easy to order your food because if people get frustrated, they might turn off it. And I've done that before on apps that are just totally, totally terrible. I don't think Portillo's was like that, but I actually didn't order any food. But We'll see prices seem good. Like I I mentioned, um, I I asked the the Twitterverse on Fintwit and people gave very great. uh, I don't know. They said so, so good, delicious, whatever, sending gifts and stuff like that. What's interesting is they did say they're hesitant to raise prices as fast as inflation right now because they want to uh, take—I don't know—they just don't want to be a price taker given the environment, and that indicates to me that their AUV could even be higher. And it's kind of impressive that they're growing at 10% even while they're not taking the like what inflation is giving them. They're going a little slower, and that their operating margins could be better if they wanted because I'm sure they could change their prices from what like eight bucks to ten bucks. People would still buy it given how expensive most other restaurants are nowadays yeah um, maybe i don't know ian is that am i off on any of that because i know you've been to the store so
0: yeah i think that's probably right um i'm not like a portillo's fanboy like some people are but it's and mostly because it's not close to me but um i think they've probably got some ability to raise prices especially considering what all the other restaurants are doing so
1: yeah all right let's move to future growth opportunities ian what do you have
0: This one's a little bit of a tricky one, but I think that they have some opportunity with menu additions. They talked on the last conference call about how they're slow to make changes and don't like to shake up the menu for just the, you know, it's a, it's a classic restaurant. People like what they like and they don't want to make a bunch of big changes, but they did add a spicy chicken sandwich. And they said, that's been a huge success. Um, and it kind of hit three, three key boxes for them. So first it tested off the chart with their consumers Second, it's been incremental to the business. And third, it's operationally very simple to execute. Um, Last year, they had about a 4.1% increase in transactions year over year. And so that doesn't take into effect any uh, pricing increases. That's just a 4% increase in transactions year year over year at the same stores. And so um, I think that some of these menu additions have the opportunity to do that. I think they're going to be slow to make changes like they have in the past, but I think there's some opportunity to find some like this, like a spicy chicken sandwich, adding it to the menu, getting a few extra sales um, a year from from some customers, I think makes a lot of sense.
1: All right, Ryan?
2: Yeah, I I mean, the growth strategy here is quite simple. So I'm trying to come up with something creative, but one development I saw that I think is kind of interesting, they said in 2021 that they began to mark up third party delivery prices. And I think that's probably okay. Like, I, I don't think there's any harm in alienating that base, not to mention it's a very small percentage of overall sales. So I, I think the, like I said, part of the experience is going to a Portillo's. It sounds like not just getting some third party delivery in a box. Um, so pushing the prices on that, I don't see a whole lot of problem. Try to make people come into the stores. Uh, I think that's probably higher margin for you anyways. And then just generally uh, it seems like they're already kind of maximizing their per store revenue. So really, I know Brett's about to touch on this, the growth is going to come from new stores.
1: Yeah. And one, uh, speaking on like a new store concept, they mentioned they have one that, uh, they just started one, I think this year that has no dining experience at all, but it's kind of like one of those drive-in places. And speaking from just personal experience, there's a, you know, there's a famous burger stand in Seattle that has a similar layout that has phenomenal AUVs, which is just, uh, what, what Average unit draw. volume. Average unit volume. So revenue per store. And I think Portillo's concept of kind of probably that late night craving food for people to go to, um, drive up and have it. I don't know. It feels like that concept would work. They said without giving really any data that that could help. And it also would have a lot better um, returns on invested capital just because you don't have the inside one. And then maybe that could help just having you know, you have the big flagship Portillo's with the cool inside experience. But then if you want more and more stores across the nation, it might be hard to have those big stores. I don't know. And you can have these smaller outlets that are just kind of driving ones, but I'll hit my future growth opportunity. And it's really the, I don't know. It's so simple with restaurants and it's just store count growth. That's the entire story here. They're only at 69 stores only in Chicago. Really? I mean, what they have four in Arizona, two in Four in Florida, two in California. They just opened one in Texas. A lot of green space ahead of them. And I don't know how many stores they could have in the United States, maybe 250 to 500, depending on how well they do. But that's a long ways away at 10% plus a year. All right, highlights and lowlights. Ian, what did you like and dislike about this business?
0: Yeah, I think first off, you got to start with a great brand. There's just a a lot of fans out there, Portillo's. Um, and I think there is a path to store growth, like you were mentioning. I think that's the that's clearly the the story here is if they can grow stores 10% a year, that's that's gonna be great. And and you know, they're starting to test it out in a few states and it seems to be working so far. Um and so I think those are those are the key highlights for me. A couple of lowlights is I'd say the restaurant business can just be hard, especially due. Um, especially in the current macro environment we're in with rising prices, rising wages, kind of a tightening labor force. Um, It just makes it difficult to to open new stores, to hire enough people um, to get your supply chains right and get quality food. There's been some people who have complained um, in Arizona that some of these stores aren't the same uh, quality um, and food as the ones in Chicagoland. And so it's, you know, it, there's people, people dispute that, right. Some people say it is, some people say it isn't, and who knows what the truth is, but I think it is, I would expect that it is more difficult to maintain that quality, maintain that same level of, um, of food and the same taste even, right. Like using different water and all that type of stuff in the food, um, across a nationwide store, a uh, nationwide footprint. And so I think there's, there's going to be some challenges there. And then also just the minority shareholder situation where, um, you know your your partners with the private equity firm, and you got to be pretty happy with that. And I, I think, as you pointed out, the the compensation for the board is a little steep. Um, the the CEO has obviously got has a big package right now, and hopefully earns it. Um, but you know you're you're not in control, and it's not the typical band of um, funds that are in control. It's not the typical the institutional money that's in in control. It's this private equity firm. So um, something to, something to be aware of
1: yeah
2: ryan highlights for me it seems like this is a model that i think could work everywhere uh, i really compare it there was a chick-fil-a that opened up in our area i want to say a few years back and there was yeah. a ton of enthusiasm for it even though it wasn't very popular up here and so i think just having a cult-like following tends to translate throughout the country even if uh, seattle maybe isn't used to it um that I'm I'm using Seattle as one of the a reference to a city that doesn't quite have Portillos yet. Um, I also think it's a really cool story, and I know that's not super important, but it almost gives you like this nostalgic American feel. It sounds like in the restaurant, and you you feel like there's a lot of history about it. Um, so I ju- I just think that's kind of cool, and maybe it plays well into uh, like uh, attracting customers as well. Low lights, I, I think. Ian, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's a pretty tough operating environment for restaurants right now. They they are they said that they're expecting commodity costs to rise thirteen to fifteen percent this year, um, and obviously commodity costs are uh, a huge input for restaurants, so that can be pretty tough. It's
1: and and they're and for growing store count, steel, wood, whatever.
2: Yeah, that, that as well. And their capex compared to last year looks like it's double, and I don't think they're adding that much more stores.
1: Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to get that same return on invested capital. Here's a question for you guys. Do you think they're not focused enough on the Chicago style sandwiches and hot dogs? Because I feel like that could be something where you you don't really have that in many cities. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Do they focus on that? Because I I think if you had in any city a Chicago style food chain with the, the sandwiches and the hot dogs... That would do well compared to saying just Portillo's because I don't know, I, no, I, I doubt many people in the, I'm using Seattle because that's where we live. Many people in the Seattle, Seattle area know about Portillo's if, unless they lived in Chicago. I'm,
2: I'm sure there's some branding that's like, that. I'm sure if they open a store. In Seattle, I think a lot of people would get the idea that it's Chicago style.
1: Yeah, but is and it, their branding feels a bit weak on the Chicago style, though. They're like, it's Portillo's. We got chocolate cake. I'm like, uh, what is this? Sometimes I get a little confused.
2: I don't know. Ian, did you think it was Chicago style the first time you went?
0: Sort of. I do I do see what you're saying, Brett, um, and I'm going to get more into it in my bear case, but I think I think it's not a crazy concern to have.
1: Okay. Yeah. Just a small thing. I thought, of. all right. Highlights. I mean, we talked about it. There's a lot of room in the country. I think another one that stood out to me, and this might just be contrasting to the sweet green report or not report, uh, whatever uh, sec filings, whatever we were reading beforehand, they have a more rational idea of what a restaurant should be. They just talk about it being, you know, making money, generating cash, getting of a bit, good return on invested capital, um, volume per store, obviously super impressive. And, you know, uh, green space for store town growth, low lights, like you guys said, uncertainty on input costs, inflationary store build-out costs, executive and board compensation seems very, very high. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the board has like seven members and they all got paid, I don't know, $400,000 last year, which was just way, way too high. Um, I don't like the debt situation. It's just not great. I don't know. <laughs> like All the cash are going to generate, it's going to go back to paying interest expense and they're going to have to refinance. If interest rates rise a lot, I wonder what sort of fixed rate debt they could get, or even if they could get fixed rate debt. I mean, if they have to do floating again, I don't know. It's just going to be a lot of interest expense and it will take a lot of time to get to a point where they can fully escape the debt because they're not going to generate, unless they can get some, I think. what are they going to get, $500 million for like 10 years? I, I mean, that would be an ideal scenario or something like that. Could they ever get to a point where they generate enough cash to actually pay back the debt. I I don't know, especially at the rate they're trying to grow.
2: I I think you bring up a really good point. So let's just touch on it and we can move this into the bear case the next two years. And maybe this is why the valuation isn't too crazy um, compared to some of the recent IPOs that we've seen. The next two years are going to be potentially very problematic. They have potentially rising interest rate environment, high inflation and they don't want to raise prices too much and that debt is coming due in two years. So they're they, going to have to refinance potentially yeah. on lower cash flow and higher interest rates. That's a really tough.
1: And they want to show good profit margins because if they're profitable consistently every quarter for the next two years, then their debt will be, they'll be able to get some better debt. But if not because of inflation, I don't know, it could be a double whammy.
2: All right. right. So I guess that that's kind of my bare case is that that. They're not able to overcome that problem in a manageable way. The other bear case for me is actually I'll say this for more
1: or less interest. Yeah, bull. Let's go bull case. Bull case Ian. What's your bull case?
0: Yeah. So as we've been talking about, I think store growth is the important thing and that they are able to get that 10% store growth a year with stable margins, kind of back to those, at least closer to those pre-2021 levels. Um I think they're competent operators that execute well, and they generate somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 million dollars in EBITDA five years from now, which is about a 10% cagr over the next five years. Um, if they got to about 130 million in EBITDA, I think that leads to somewhere around a double in five years, and so market beating returns over the next five years if they can if they can hit that 10% um, 10% year cagr in EBITDA.
2: Yeah, Ryan, I, I think we all have pretty similar numbers. They they are projecting long term. Store count growth of ten percent a year, if they can hit that, uh, and then they can grow same store sales by low single digits. You're looking at pretty good revenue growth, and hopefully they can recoup sort of their 2019 cash flow margins and get up to ten percent, maybe even maybe closer to fifteen percent in the long run.
1: You think they can get that free cash flow? I mean, those capex. Uh, let's
2: high. let's go operating cash CapEx. flow, right. but free cash flow should hopefully come closer over the long run. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think if they're able to expand throughout the U S and have success in California and potentially throughout the West coast, there's probably not going to be that much of a worry. I think this will be fine.
1: Yeah. And same for me. Let's just go over some numbers here. If they get to 150 stores, which is definitely more than five years from now, probably seven to eight years from now, it's a little um, under a double. Yeah. 150
2: store growth.
1: Yeah, 150 stores, $10 million AUV, which is per store revenue, and 10% operating margin. That's what equates, if you multiply those out, to $150 million in annual operating profit, similar to what Ian was doing in EBITDA, but just maybe this is eight years from now instead of five. You'd probably think that's worth a $3 billion enterprise value. And right now, the enterprise value is only a billion. So if you think they can get there, the light at the end of the tunnel a decade from now could be good if the store count if all the stores are profitable
0: in. Yeah. And I'll just add one more thing is that the debt load it doesn't appear that the debt load necessarily has to increase. They've been the last couple of years they've been able to grow 10% a year without um with basically cash flow neutral um in terms of capex and so if you're getting all that bump in EV you're probably not also having to increase your debt load over that time and so you're getting kind of you're juicing your returns and your equity returns a little bit. Um, but anyways,
1: yeah. All right. Bear case, you know, what's yours? Uh, my bear
0: case is kind of what you were touching on a couple minutes ago, Brett, that I think there's a chance that the concept doesn't translate super well to the rest of the country. Um, it's obviously been wildly popular in Chicago, um in kind of the surrounding area and it's been popular in Arizona so far too. But one of the things that's really beneficial to them about Arizona is there's a lot of Chicago transplants and a lot of Chicago snowbirds in Arizona. And so people come to Ari- retire out to Arizona or come out here for a couple months from Chicago and they see portillos and they're like sweet. I'm, you know, I've got my favorite restaurant here. I don't know how well that translates to the rest of the country or how well the rest of the country necessarily like you said, the, the branding isn't super strong. Just from the, like the Portillo's name, right? It doesn't. It's not super strong. That it's a Chicago restaurant, right? It's and even nearly, the menu I don't items. I think it's nearly
1: as good as Chick Fil A. Like Ryan was using as an example. I don't think it's nearly as
0: good. Right. I don't. I don't, I don't think, think it has the cachet right now. I think the question is, can it get that? Now, it, is it on the cusp of becoming more like Chick Fil A? That you slowly start putting a couple in each of these states, and people start realizing, oh wow, this is amazing, and it and you're able to benefit from that because it, the the brand is strong in the places where it's strong and it's gonna be able to become strong in the other places. But if that doesn't happen, I think the growth numbers aren't there, which then causes the debt load to become, you know, more troublesome over time is, you know, they've spent more in CapEx on places that don't generate as good of, um, don't have the same returns as their restaurants in some of their more popular markets.
1: Yeah, I think an important one will be California, if they can get, because yeah. that, that feels like Arizona and Florida, you live in Arizona, Ian, so this, I don't know. Those feel like not, those feel like fake states to me. It's all retirees or whatever. But <laughs> California uh, is like a- Why are you
2: dogging on Arizona? Hey,
1: Arizona's I mean, it's, got it's Intel, Intel out here. Right? We got TSMC
0: coming. So, you know, Arizona's on the up and up.
1: <laughs> oh, but, I agree. I agree. But I'm just- Silicon but, uh, Valley of the Southwest. It's the Silicon Valley <laughs> right. of, Central, of Central Arizona. The. Uh, <laughs> right.
0: But I will say, though, I think you're right, that this story depends on California and Texas probably.
1: Texas Um, is, yeah, maybe Texas is more important than California, given uh, that they really were hyping up the Dallas location. so
2: I I do think, I think that's interesting. Something you brought up earlier, Ian, you said like uh, some of the Chicagoites uh, that are down in Arizona were like, oh, this isn't as good as the Chicago Portillo's. You don't want a store that feels like, oh, that's a Chicago thing, exclusively a Chicago thing, because that doesn't translate as well. Chick-fil-A feels more like a national thing. And I think yeah. that's part of why it was so successful. So that could be a potential problem. The real part of the, and this is, I guess, but why don't you hit your bear case, Brett, because I'm going to say have a more or less interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, have nothing else down in your bear case. Yeah. I mean, mine is just input costs, debt, high executive pay. It all drives margins down. And I worry about them really, you know, giving a lot of cash to their executive and board members. Um, and I also worry about the debt, interest expense, and the input cost. I mean, inflation seems to be, Pretty bad right now, as we all know. And well, it's going to make it tough for generating cash for shareholders.
2: If you if you only highlight your restaurant level EBITDA, Adjusted you, EBITDA, can, you yeah. can give however much you want to corporate expenses.
1: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't include it. At least they're both, pro- unlike Sweetgreen, who touts that. They are profitable. And they, they're actually, consul- on a consolidated level, they are profitable. Looking at that 27% number, I mean, yeah, that number is important, but it's a pretty big gap between that and corporate levels, given their pay. paid. Um, but if they execute, all right, that's fine. The executive team deserves to get paid a lot. I don't have much concern like on what the income statement's going to look like on a consolidated level. I think over the long term, it'll be fine. I mean, the food costs could be, in the short run, be bad. But that one seems like we'll figure it out. But the cash flow statement and the share count seems like the biggest concern yeah. uh, from my point of view, looking at this for the first time. All right, last question. More or less interested, Ian?
0: This one's a tough one for me. I think I'll probably... I'm probably a little less interested than I was when I first looked at it, but I'm going to give it a little bit more of a look um, just because I think there's, I do like these stories where you have, have some store count um, possibilities. I think it does have a good brand. I think you have the potential, like I was mentioning a second ago that this becomes that this, that you're able to grow with this brand. Right. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's a certainty by any stretch of the imagination, especially given the, the macro environment that this thing is able to reach all the goals that it has. Um, and that it's set out for itself.
1: What about if their balance sheet is cleaner? How much of a positive? Is that a big overhang?
0: (laughs) Yeah, a a little (laughs) bit for me, but it's not as big as I would have, like they're generating enough cash flow where they can deal with the debt load. Um, and I don't think that that's a concern. I just don't know that the growth is going to be there. Um, like they're expecting it's going to be, And that even if the growth is there, if that growth is going to be as profitable as their current stores. And they even say that their Chicagoland stores are much more profitable than their stores in some of the other States. And I worry that that trend, um, will continue, which just, which means that, you know, I just don't know that the growth is quite going to be, the profitable growth is going to be there in a way that really makes this a big winner. And I don't think like, I don't think there's a huge risk of like permanent loss of capital here, because I think they, like I think their current business is generating cash flow to cover the debt and they'll be able to, you know, survive that. But I could who knows? You know, <laughs> just all speculation on my part.
2: Yeah, it might Ryan? be maybe just an underwhelming investment. I'm a little I almost grew less interested as the episode went on. At first, when I took a look at it, I was like, wow, this is the highest grossing fast casual restaurant per store. That's obviously there's a cult-like following.
1: Valuation is an insane.
2: The the one thing I do struggle with is and it's the same with retail as it is with restaurants it feels like a lot of successful investments in this area hinge especially on growth stories they hinge on basically your subjective assessment of the restaurant i've never been i don't really have a subjective assessment so i just have a hard time predicting like who the winners will be
1: yeah it's a tough space i'm saying more interested in this than sweet green I think you <laughs> could say that for sure. I think I'm more interested, but I just don't like, I think I said this last week. I don't like, and I'll say it again. I don't like physical uh, concepts, which means I like, I like digital. Don't like the I like real digital. world. I like the fake world, the virtual world. That's, I mean, come on. Big the metaverse, metaverse truth are over here. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, not the metaverse, but uh, I guess software. The but serious, like in all seriousness, they got a lot of input costs that are gonna be high. I mean, beef costs are high. That is unpredictable for them. So no matter how well they execute, if some of these inflationary things happen, I mean, the, the margins aren't gonna be that great. Um, but I mean, it seems promising. I don't know. It doesn't seem as bulletproof as say, like a Chipotle expanding, just because Chipotle or a Chick-fil-A, the concept is so much simpler: chicken sandwiches. Or burritos, and those are known by people around the country already and are quite popular. But it's Chicago-style food, I think, needs a little brand pumping, um, like we talked about before, and that's that's one of the big holdups. All right. Uh, so Ryan, were you more or less were you more interested, Ryan? I'm
2: I'm actually going to keep an eye on to see how their expansion in California goes, but you're I'm on the fence. less interested for the time being.
1: Oh, less interested. Close to climbing. And I'll say that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I said close to climbing the fence, though. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right on the
0: edge. Right on the edge. Ian. I was just gonna say, and their earnings are coming out, I think, just a couple of days after this episode. So um their Q1 earnings. And so that should give a little more, you know, we'll get another update on this because it's a fairly, you know, <laughs> it only went public last year. And so there's just not a lot of track record here to see. No. what management says and how it correlates to what actually happens. And those types yeah. of things, so.
1: Mar- margin's are going to go back to 10%. We're going to be all our concerns are going to be wrong. All right. Stock for next week, Ryan, what do you got for us?
2: I'll let you guys vote it out. Uh, I got three potential ones here. There's Robin hood, which would be Robin hood revisited. It's down a, an insane amount since we last looked at it. Then the other one is service now. And the last one is Pinterest, which I think would also be another revisited.
1: Uh, ServiceNow seems like no one will listen, (laughs) but a great company. Uh, I don't know. Ian, what are your thoughts?
0: I don't know. I'm probably, I would be down to revisit Robinhood or Pinterest. I think those would be interesting to take another look at.
1: I'll do, I'll vote Pinterest. That seems more interesting given how chaotic, not chaotic, how dynamic the social media market industry seems to be right now.
2: Okay. Pinterest it is.
1: Pinterest revisited. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Give us a review on Spotify or Apple. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.